I'm very grateful always to be able to um, fill the pulpit for Pastor Tim when he's away. And uh, this morning, I want to just dive right into the scriptures because we are, in fact, only four weeks away from Easter Sunday. And I hope that you have been asking God to lay specific people on your heart that you want to invite to come with you to church on Easter Sunday. Easter Sunday is uh, the biggest day of the year for the church. It's kind of our Super Bowl Sunday, right? This is the, this is the day that everybody comes, even the folks who don't normally come to church, come to church on Easter. And so it's an opportunity It's a huge opportunity to be able to impact people, to share the gospel and see people saved. And so you are a part of that. It's part of, and so we are challenging everybody to pinpoint specific people, ask God to put people on your heart and invite them and say, I want you to come to church on Easter Sunday with me so that we can fill this place and people can hear the gospel and people's lives can be changed. And so... um, we want to continue to challenge you to do that. Over the past several weeks, Pastor Tim has been walking us through the scriptures, and I don't know if you've noticed, but there has been a theme to his sermons. And he's been walking us through the New Testament, through the Gospels, and showing us pictures of individual people who had face-to-face encounters with Jesus Christ and whose lives were changed and never the same. I tend to believe that nobody... In history, whether past, present, or future, can come face to face and have an encounter with the person of Jesus Christ and walk away from that encounter exactly the same. It's impossible. Now, many walk away from Christ because they don't accept his message, they don't accept the gospel, but I still don't think they walk away from him exactly the same. Something changes, something is different. They've, they've, heard the gospel, they've been, they've been brought face-to-face with truth. And anytime we're brought face-to-face with truth, we shouldn't walk away from that encounter exactly the same. And so this morning, we're going to look at another one of those encounters, another one of those personal encounters that Jesus had with someone. We're going to look in the gospel of John in chapter 8. So if you would turn in your Bibles to chapter 8 of John's gospel, we're going to begin... In verse 1, and hopefully this morning what will happen is not only will we read of this encounter with Jesus, but we ourselves will have an encounter with Jesus, and we ourselves will walk out of here not the same as the way we came in. Verse 1 of chapter 8 begins this way. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. And as he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. Now, this is a scene that we see all throughout the Gospels. It's not uncommon at all. We have the religious elite trying to set Jesus up in an attempt to trap him 
with his own words. The Pharisees did this multiple times, and so this is not out of the ordinary. But this particular time, they have come up with what they thought was a brilliant plan that was foolproof. And I have to say, of all of the plans that the Pharisees tried to come up with to trap Jesus in his own words, this is probably one of the best. Like, they really worked hard on this one. Um, However, there are several details in this story that are going to give us some insights into the heart that these men had. This is a story we're all familiar with. But first of all, you may or may not have noticed the absence of the man in which this woman had committed adultery with. The Pharisees came in the name of the law of Moses. They said, Jesus, this woman has broken the law. Moses says to Stoner, what do you say? Well, let's go back and look at exactly what the law of Moses does say. In Leviticus 20, verse 10, it says, If a man commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, both the man and the woman who have committed adultery must be put to death. And then it's repeated again in Deuteronomy twenty two twenty two. If a man is discovered committing adultery, both he and the woman must die. In this way, you will purge Israel of such evil. So there's something fishy going on with this encounter. Had these Pharisees really been so concerned with making sure that the law of God was upheld then they would have dragged the man out into the streets along with the woman. But in this case, they only have the woman. You know why? What that tells us is that their concern was not that the law of God was upheld. These guys were not doing this because they loved the law of God. They were doing it because they hated Jesus. It's possible that they may have even paid someone, paid the man, to set this woman up simply to create a case that they could bring before Jesus. It is very, very fishy. And it's very easy for us to assume that they set this whole thing up. Maybe it's even possible that the reason they didn't drag the man out with them was because he might have been one of them. But nonetheless... They're not really concerned with the law. And we, and we can see that, obviously, from the very beginning. Their piety um, is, is trying to present themselves as being, oh, we're so concerned that, that God's law is kept. And, and they're not concerned about the law. They don't care about this woman. They don't care about the law of God. They care about getting rid of Jesus. It's all about that. So they've manipulated the law of Moses, in order to meet their own needs. But their plan seemed pretty brilliant. And, and in their mind, they, they had finally figured it out. And, and to be honest, this really was a great plan because they've caught Jesus in a dilemma that they didn't see a way for him to get out of. And here's the dilemma. If they bring this woman before Jesus, who was caught in the act... Multiple witnesses. And Jesus says, no, don't stone her. Then they would charge Jesus with defying the law of Moses. 
which was given to Moses by God. Therefore, he defies the law of God. And this would discredit all of Jesus' claims. Because Jesus had already made it clear that he didn't come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill it. So he held the law in high regard. So if they could trap him and say, no, don't stone her, then he was speaking against the law and he lost all credit. And then they could bring religious charges against him. But if Jesus says, yes, go ahead and stone her, then he ruins his reputation among the people. Because Jesus had built a reputation for being a friend of sinners. And so the people would no longer be compelled to believe his message. The crowds would go away. Nobody would listen to him. Because his message was forgiveness and compassion for the poor and the weak and the victims of injustice. So all of a sudden, if he let them do it, then all of that goes away. So this is, uh, this is a good plan, they think. This is, a, this is a good, great dilemma that they put Jesus in. And is this not the same dilemma that all of man has wrestled with forever? That, that people today wrestle with. How can God be a God of righteous justice and yet still be a God of compassion and forgiveness? In, in, in the Pharisees' minds and even in the minds of people today, these two things seem completely incompatible. How can God be both righteous and make sure that, that what is right is defended, but at the same time, how can he be so merciful and so loving. So here's the answer. You ready? There is no answer. There is no answer to that. And this is why. It is completely beyond our comprehension because God embodies both of those characteristics completely and fully. God is completely justice and righteousness 100% and God is also completely and fully merciful and forgiving and loving. He embodies both of those characteristics completely and fully and you say, well, I can't understand that. You don't have to. It is not for us to be able to understand. That is a concept and a truth about the character of God that can only be understood through a mind of faith. There is no human comprehension where we can reconcile those two things. But the Pharisees thought they had set the perfect trap for Jesus here. And so you can just imagine them thinking, how is he going to get out of this one? So let's look at the second half of verse 6 on through verse 8. And let's see how Jesus reacts. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger... They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. (laughs) I'm sorry that I laughed there, but I can't help it. Because I love this. He they they think that they've got him cornered. They've given him, I mean, you talk about being put on the spot. 
Okay, they, they drag this woman out in public, bring him straight to Jesus, lay the question on him, and, and demand an immediate answer. He just kind of leans over, starts running his fingers through, this, through the dirt, through the sand, taking his time, and it's making them mad. They are getting so angry. You know what Jesus was doing? He was establishing who had control. They thought they had control. But he's taking control of the situation. He's just running his hands through that. Now, there's lots of speculation about what was he doing? What was he drawing? Some people say, you know, he, he may have been writing the the names or the sins of the Pharisees in the dirt, or maybe he was drawing pictures of something. And there's no way for us to know the answer to that question. Lots of speculation. So you can use your imagination. I'll tell you where my imagination goes. I tend to believe he wasn't drawing anything, and he wasn't writing anything. I think he was just playing in the dirt. I think he was just moving his hand around, just feeling. I mean, this is the earth he created. And he's down, and, and, and he's doing it to establish the fact that he's in control, that he's not accountable to these men. He's accountable to the Father. And so after, after he is down and he runs his fingers through the dirt a little bit, and they're getting angry, and he says they keep on. Like, what, give us your answer, Jesus. What do you say? We're waiting. And he stands up and he says, okay. But the one of you who has no sin, you go first. And then he stoops back down and starts playing in the dirt again. I love it. He's, again, he's establishing the fact that he is the very author of the law that they are trying to use to trap him. How ironic is that? They don't get that, but that's the truth. He wrote the law. It's his law. So how do they think they're going to trap him in this? This is what Jesus does. In that statement, the one of you that's without sin, throw the first stone. He, he throws a condition into... They're asking permission to, to bring condemnation on this woman because of her sin. Jesus says, well, I'm going to put one condition on it. And that condition is righteousness. Jesus turns their own condemnation that they are throwing upon this woman. And he turns their own condemnation back onto themselves. Here they are. They have stones in hand. They are ready to dish out capital punishment to this woman for something many of them likely were guilty of themselves. Perhaps they had not physically broken the commandment against adultery, but if we go back to Matthew chapter 5, what did Jesus already tell them about adultery? Guys, if you look at a woman lustfully and think about what it would be like to be with her, then you're an adulterer. 
you're guilty. And he also told him, if you divorce your wife for some flippant reason other than unfaithfulness, you make her an adulterer and as well yourself when you move on to somebody else. They're all guilty. And see, Jesus knew the sin in their hearts and knew the sin in their lives. And he would have been completely capable of publicly exposing all of their sin right there in front of that crowd that was watching. I completely believe Jesus could have gone around that entire crowd of Pharisees and pointed them out and said, well, I know what you're doing right now. And last week, this is what you were doing. And a month ago, you were doing this, and you guys thought nobody knew about it. And he could go around and he could have publicly exposed the sin of every single one of those men and could have called them all out. But he didn't. (laughs) He did something that was even more impactful than that. He demands that they stop and judge themselves in all of their own secret sins that they fought so hard to hide from everybody else because these guys had a reputation. They were guilty of the very sin that they were trying to pass judgment on. And Jesus simply says, no, you can't do that. You've made yourselves worthy of something that you will never be worthy of. And I won't give you permission to do this to this woman. And he stoops down and he writes in the dirt some more. It's almost like he's given them a moment to take in what he said. Because that's all that had to be said. He didn't have to explain himself. He doesn't force, forcibly stop them. But what he does is even more powerful. What he does in this moment is almost more powerful than if he had literally built a brick wall between them and this woman. And so let's see what their response is. Verse 9. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman now this moment I think that Jesus makes his statement and he stoops down and he begins to draw in the dirt again and the whole place just becomes silent I would have loved to have been in that crowd And I believe that the silence that came over that crowd when Jesus said that was broken by that first stone. That dropped and hit the ground. I'd love to have heard just that first stone. Hit the dirt. And one of the older guys turns and begins to walk away. We know why, it's obvious why the oldest were the first ones to drop their stones and walk away. They, had, they were more experienced. 
not just in dealing with the sins of other people, but in struggling and dealing with their own. It didn't take them long to understand the point that Jesus was trying to make. And soon the other ones, one by one, and they turn and walk away. And one by one, the crowd dissipates until there's nobody left except the woman and Jesus. So look at verse 10. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? Now Jesus has already taught the Pharisees what he had to teach them. So now he turns his attention to the woman. And he asked her this question, and it's obvious that he's not literally asking her, where did your accusers go? Because he was there. He saw them drop their stones and walk away. He saw where they went. He knew where they had gone. And he knew that none of them were condemning her. It's not that he's asking her literally, where did they go? This is what he's asking. Wasn't there anybody in that group who was righteous enough to give you the punishment that your sin deserves? Was there anybody in that group that was righteous enough to do that? Look at verse 11. Her answer is no, Lord. And Jesus says, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Now, I try to get into the mind of this woman. She sees that none of the Pharisees have stayed, that they've all gone because they felt the guilt of their own sinfulness before God. But as Jesus says those words to the Pharisees, I have to feel like the woman has this moment of humility and conviction as she must have recounted in her mind all of the times that she had been guilty, all of the past times that she had committed adultery with different men, man after man after man, and didn't get caught. Because isn't that really when our sin becomes real to us? When we finally get caught. So as she's watching and she's listening, Jesus says, the one of you that has no sin, throw the first stone at her. Immediately, she begins to think about all of her sin. All of the times that she's been an adulteress over and over and over and she just didn't get caught. And maybe she also realized that in that moment that the only one that really was in fact worthy to pronounce judgment on her was the only one who was left, which was Jesus. And when she answers this question, no, Lord, I feel like maybe she's preparing to hear his judgment. And she's bracing herself for whatever punishment he's about to dish out 
for her because she realizes there's a difference. And she realizes that this man is different, that he speaks with authority. And of all the people who could judge her, he could. And he says, where are your accusers? Did nobody condemn you? And she says, no, Lord. But then in that moment, as she answers him and says no, as she's bracing herself to hear what Jesus is going to say, what Jesus is going to do, what condemnation he's going to bring on her, because he is worthy to do it. He hears the three most beautiful words that she's ever heard in her entire life. And I think that a woman like this probably heard lots of beautiful, kind words from lots of men. I think a woman like this had lots of men whisper things in her ear over her lifetime. Lots of men to tell her how beautiful she was, how gorgeous she was, how much they wanted to be with her, how wonderful she was. And she probably got good feelings from those words. But this, <laughs> this, is, this is different. Most beautiful words that she's ever heard. Jesus says, neither do I. What he says to her is, I can condemn you. I have the power. I have the authority. And I have the righteousness to condemn you. But I'm not going to. I don't. Neither do I. That, folks, is the gospel. When we say the gospel is good news, that's the good news. <laughs> do you understand that Jesus has the power and the righteousness and the authority to condemn you and me and everyone else of all of our sin? But he stands over us and says... I'm not going to condemn you. That's the good news of the gospel. Now, you may be thinking, I know what some, some people are probably thinking, whoa, whoa, whoa. He just lets her off the hook. That's not fair. He's just going to let her walk away and there's no penalty for what she's done. There's no punishment for her sin. She deserves to be punished. You are absolutely right. She deserves to be punished. But Jesus isn't letting her off the hook. There was condemnation for her sin. There was going to be judgment for what she had done then and what she had done in all of those times in the past. But what Jesus says to her is, I have the power to condemn you for your sin. But rather than take that condemnation and put it on you, I'm going to take it. It's not that Jesus lets her off the hook. And it's not that he dismisses the punishment. What he does is even bigger than that. He, he says righteousness demands that sin be punished. But I'm not going to condemn you here. I'm going to take the condemnation for what you've just done and for everything you've done in the past and I'm going to put it in me and I'm going to take it to the cross. So there is condemnation for sin. It's not a write-off and it's not a bailout. 
he takes it. 2 Corinthians 5.19, if we listen, it says, For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, listen, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. You know what the message of the gospel is? You know what the message of the church should be? It's this, that you are guilty as sin for everything that you've done, but God isn't going to hold that sin against you because he's taken every bit of the guilt and the condemnation that you deserve and he put it on his son and it died on the cross. That's, and that's the message. That's the reconciliation that God says, I'm reconciling the world to myself and this is the way I'm going to do it. And that's the ministry he's given to the church. And then Jesus says something at the end of this that that we can't overlook. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. There's the mercy of Jesus in the neither do I. But the righteousness of Jesus says, go and sin no more. There's a firm grasp of the commandments. Jesus doesn't tell her that her sin doesn't matter. He doesn't say that she can just keep doing it. And that what she's done is okay. He tells her to leave it. To repent. Because of the mercy that she's been shown. He never condones her sin or makes it okay. But he commands that she give it up. And this is the concept that the Pharisees didn't understand. And this is the concept maybe some of us sometimes don't understand. And it is this. If we attempt to go and sin no more without experiencing the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus, the result of that is we become Pharisees. If you try to not sin before you've experienced the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus, you become a moralist. You become legalistic. You you become someone who thinks that your righteousness before God has something to do with how good or bad you are. And that you can make yourself right before God by doing good things. And you can't do good things. You can't be perfect. You can't uphold the law of God. It's impossible. But the only way he can say to this woman, get up and go and stop doing what you're doing, is because she's experienced grace. And she's experienced forgiveness. It's only after we surrender to the grace of the cross that we realize the ability to not sin was never in us to begin with, no matter how hard we try. But it's the grace of Jesus that gives us freedom and unchains us from sin so that we can get up out of the dirt and walk away from it. Redeemed. Shake off these heavy chains. What? Why would you let Christ free you from the chains of sin and then go right back to them and lock yourself back up? Jesus says, go. You've been forgiven. You've been freed. Go and, and stop sinning. 
your motivation for not sinning completely changes. It's not because you're trying to get God's approval. It's because you've already gotten God's approval. He's already forgiven you and freed you. That's why you live as a free person. And here's the other thing. In closing, the very last thing. Maybe one of the hardest things for us to do is to free others of their sinfulness. To free others from our condemnation. You know why the gospel demands that we free other people from condemnation that comes from us? Is because Jesus freed us already from his condemnation. Jesus has freed you. So when he says go and sin no more, what he says is you go and free other people from the condemnation. I don't care. You may think you have the right and you may think that's the fair thing. But I took what fair would have given you and I took it away from you and I put it on my son. So you get up in grace and forgiveness and you go free other people from the condemnation that they deserve from you and free them from that. And then maybe, just maybe, in that grace that you show them, they see the grace of your Lord. And their life has changed.